social media, but I've seen it everywhere. And that is the trend of, of Christians, people in the church, uh, saying horrible things about the other political party, people who aren't what they are. And so therefore they spew vitriol, they spill, spill hate. They talk about how evil the other party is. And you, know, you can talk about different issues and things like that, but at the end of the day, it's behavior that just does not what a Christian is supposed to be. People taking their political views to extreme and inappropriate levels. And I think coming back to what Jesus says here, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, render to God what is God's. I think we need to come back to that on a regular basis and we need to think about that. We need to remind ourselves that our priority should be God, but instead we find many times our happiness, our stress level, our general state of well-being or unwell-being is dependent upon who wins an election. And that's wrong. How does it all fit together? You know, as we consider the answer to this question, how does it all fit together? I think we have to just determine what is Caesar's? What's his? And to, to just avoid any confusion, when I say Caesar, I'm talking about our government. What do we owe our government? And not from the standpoint of what our government says we owe them, but rather what does God say that we owe our government? And that's where we need to start tonight. Romans chapter 13, verses one through two. And Jeffrey spent some time here a few weeks ago, so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but it has to be talked about. Beginning of verse one of Romans 13, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God and, who's, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Submission and subjection. We don't like those words. From the earliest age, a human can really start to make their decisions. What do we do? We resist authority. We have to get our hineys whipped as little kids because we resist authority. We have to learn it the hard way. So when we read passages like this, these are very hard for us to do. Not, not complicated, but hard. We don't like submission. We don't like subjection. But Paul told the church at Rome, you submit to your authorities and let that sort of sink in for a minute. He told the church at Rome, submit to your authorities. And we complain about our free democracy and submitting to them. And here's the church in the first century submitting to the most ruthless government that ever existed. Let every soul be subject to the government authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God. The authorities exist are appointed by God. And so when we resist those authorities, what are we doing? We're resisting God. So what I'm about to say may sound kind of unpatriotic. 1776, Independence Hall. Those men signed their names to the Declaration of Independence. They were guilty of this. They were guilty of resisting the authority of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm glad they did it. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have a British accent, okay? But at the same time, I'm not gonna be held accountable for that, but they might be, I don't know. The point is, is they resisted the authority of God. And you might say, well, they were, they were standing up for freedom, the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, and, and all that taxation without representation. Maybe, yes, they were. 
But you know, they got all crazy because the government put a tax on their breakfast beverage. And it wasn't even coffee. It was tea. I say that to be humorous, but at the end of the day, this is what they were doing. They were resisting the authority of God. And so therefore, we pay taxes. Romans 13, verse 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes, taxes are due. Customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is another thing we don't like to do. And we've got it better than a lot of other states in Texas. You know, people are leaving California like it's the Exodus, you know, trying to get away from that mess. But here we are, and we still don't like to write that check, or we don't like to see that money taken out of our paycheck. But Paul told the Romans, you pay your taxes. Why? Because it goes to those governments that are appointed by God. They're God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. They're protecting you. They're fixing your roads. All those things that they should be doing and may be doing or may not be doing doesn't matter. Pay your taxes. Number three, our prayers. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Praying for our authorities. Now, this is easier sometimes than others, right? It may be easy to pray for Ronald Reagan, but how in the world do you pray for Adolf Hitler? How do you pray for Saddam Hussein? Some of you may say, well, how am I going to pray for Joe Biden? Or how do I pray for Donald Trump? That's hard to do. Maybe that's hard. Maybe it is. But what he's saying here is not pray for them, meaning when you pray for them, it means you have to agree with everything that they do, with all their policy decisions. It doesn't mean that you hope that they succeed in the things that they do. What he says here, pray for them so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. That's all you have to do. You don't have to pray for a certain political agenda. Is it wrong to do that? I don't know. But all I know here is what he's saying is it's not that you're praying that they'll succeed in everything or that you have to agree with the things they do. Just simply pray that they'll make decisions that allow us to be the kind of people God wants us to be. And we're not even guaranteed that. We have brothers and sisters all over this world that are persecuted. Their governments don't lead in that way. So we're, there's no guarantee of this anyway. I read a humorous fake news headline the other day that talked about libertarians were able to obey this command by praying that the government would just come crashing down. <laughs> and we certainly don't want to pray for that either. But as we consider what is Caesar's tonight, our submission, our subjection, paying taxes, giving them what they're due as far as respect and honor, paying our taxes and praying for them, in the sense that we just want to be able to live our lives in the way that God wants us to. And we could go into the wither twos and the why fours. We could drill down. We could find other scriptures. At the end of the day, as far as I can tell, this is it. This is what we owe Caesar. So the question that I have is, if this is really all there is to it, why do we give so much more to Caesar? And what are we giving to Caesar that we really should be giving to God? Because when we ask the question, what is God's, the answer is, is almost just as simple, but it's so much more than what we give to Caesar. First of all, priority. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your mind. This is priority. What's left after those things? This is all that a person is, our heart, our soul, our mind. There's nothing left over from that. You love God with everything that you are. That means he is your priority. Not that he's at the top of a list of priorities. He is the list. God is our priority. Somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 2001, 2002, as I was commuting from Canyon to Amarillo, like I still do today, but back then, in the mornings, it was talk radio. It was, in the mornings on the way to work, it was Glenn Beck. On my lunch hour, it was Rush Limbaugh. In the evening, on the way home, it was Michael Medved. And then it was Fox News and Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity. And I got obsessed. I got obsessed with following the political currents and what was going on. And I stressed about elections and what's going to happen if so-and-so gets elected or what's going to happen if so-and-so doesn't get elected. I made it a priority in my life. And let's just call it what it was. It was sin. Because I guarantee you, look, it's not wrong to listen to talk radio. Not necessarily. Is it wrong to watch Fox News? Not necessarily. But I guarantee you, I was spending more time doing that than I was studying my Bible. And brothers and sisters, that's sinful. There's no other word for it. When we make those kinds of things a priority in our lives, when we become so consumed with what's going on around us that we neglect the one thing that really matters, it is sin. God demands our priority. He demands our obedience. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now I get it, we obey our government. We talked about we have to be submissive and in subjection to our government. And part of that means we obey them, right? in so much as that we're obeying God when we do that. It's a command of God to do that. So if it makes it easier for you when we're submitting to our government and obeying them to say, hey, I'm really just obeying God, and that's fine because that's really what we're doing. God demands our obedience. This is where our true obedience lies. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who votes the Republican ticket. No. He who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. God demands our obedience, and God demands our service. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Again, heart, soul, and mind. What's left when we're living as a sacrifice? Nothing. We're giving it all to God. We're living for him. Our service is to him. Now, community service is great. Our congregation is involved in community service. I believe we should be. I believe individually we should be involved in that. But what is the purpose of that? Is it just so our community can be a better place? No, we're out there shining the light of Christ. We're letting people see our good works and glorifying God. We're trying to lead people to Christ. And yes, we want our community to be a good place to live. But if that's the, just the end of it, we're worried about, we're doing it for the wrong reason. How do we make our community, better, a community a better place? Some people might say, well, we got to organize and we got to go all grassroots and we got to rise up and we got to get the vote out and we've got to make these issues known and we've got to oppose these issues and we got to support these issues. That's a lot of work. That's exhausting to me. Why not just go save souls? Why not just go preach Jesus? 
and our community is made better one soul at a time, that's a lot easier to handle. You see, when you make disciples of Christ, the good community is gonna follow. That's why our service needs to be to God and not to some government. Our devotion, Matthew 16, 24, and then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We follow Jesus, and other people follow us to follow Jesus. When we're devoted to him, then everything else falls into place. We're gonna have a better community one soul at a time when we're devoted to God, when we're giving God what's his, when we're giving him our priority, our obedience, our service, our devotion, that's when our community becomes a better place. So how do we know? You know, I gave a pretty extreme example earlier of how often I listen to talk radio and watch the news. That's, that's easy to, I was over the line. That's real easy to know. I don't know that I can go to a scripture this, this evening and say, this is the line. You can't cross this line. But there are a couple of examples I want to look at in the New Testament when it comes to the way uh, the apostles dealt with certain situations and dealing with their authorities that I think can really help us understand maybe where our mindset needs to be. In Acts chapter 5, we read about the apostles, uh, specifically Peter and some of the other apostles. They were teaching in Jerusalem. They were getting in trouble with the local authorities, specifically the Jewish authorities, um, and they you know, had basically warned them, hey, don't teach this stuff anymore, and they kept doing it. So we see in Acts chapter 5, in verse 27, it says, when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, we, this is something we can get behind, right? As people who like to be able to buck authority whenever and wherever we can, here's basically an explicit case of an apostle ordained by Jesus himself standing up to authority and saying, we're not gonna obey you, we're gonna obey God. And this is something we can get behind. Well, when I, I, notice, I wanna notice the attitude of this and also wanna know what happens. See, they're, they're basically said, hey, you're teaching all this stuff and you're causing trouble, you're trying to bring this man's blood down us. And Peter's like, I'm sorry. We're going to obey God. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. We're going to preach the gospel. But now I want to take a look at the, the Paul Harvey of this. And we'll do that again on another one here in a minute. For those of you young kids who don't know, Paul Harvey was an old guy who used to talk about the rest of the story. The story that most people don't forget about or don't talk about. What happened after this? Would Peter draw out his sword and say, well, we've had enough of you. We're not going to obey you and we're going to have a rebellion and the other apostles pull out their swords and we're going to talk about freedom of religion. The people deserve to know the truth and you've been oppressing us. They didn't lead a revolt. What happened? They agreed with him and when they called the other apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They took a beating they didn't rise up. They didn't cause a rebellion. They didn't speak out against their authorities. What did they do? They submitted. They were still in subjection to their authority here. 
They said, we're not going to obey. You do whatever you have to do. And they took a beating. And then they rejoiced in it, that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And then what did they do? They beat them, say, don't talk about it anymore. What did they do? They went out and talked about it more. Why? Because they were obeying God. And they were willing to accept the consequences. Now, some people might look at this and they say, okay, so... I can drive however fast I want to, and as long as I'm willing to accept the consequences, then that's okay. <laughs> that's not what this is. This is not the consequences. This is do what God tells you to do and accept the consequences. They weren't trying to get some legal loophole to work out of what the law said. They were just simply obeying God. And if you arrest me, if you beat me, if you kill me, whatever it is, that's fine. I'm gonna do what God told me to do. So obedience to God, but not open rebellion. Remember back in grade school when you did greater than and less than, how the, the alligator always ate the, the bigger number? That's how, always, that's how I had to learn it. I'd always make the alligator teeth on my little carrot thing to show that it was eating the bigger number. I want to talk about right versus rights and how right is greater than our rights. Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and Silas in the Philippi, and they're going around and they're preaching, and they're being followed by this woman who's got some kind of possession that allows her to make money for some men in the city. Well, Paul casts out the, the spirit or the demon and causes these men to start losing money because of it, and so it raises a big ruckus. In verse 22, it says, The multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them in prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. So we're all familiar with this story, or most of us are. And we love what happens next. We love how Paul and Silas go to prison, and at midnight they begin to sing. They begin to pray. There's the earthquake. All the bands of the prisoners are loosed. The, the jailer comes in, going to kill himself, and Paul stops him. They preach the gospel. The man and his household are saved. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But now for the rest of the story. You know, we, we read this and we talk about how what a great moment it was, a great conversion and, and a great moment for the gospel. But, you know, there's something else that happens after this that's, that's pretty interesting that we, we don't read about a lot. So let's look at what happened the next day. When it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. Now I find this very interesting because what is Paul doing? He's exercising his rights but he's doing it after the fact. The day before, when all the ruckus started, he could have said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a citizen of Rome. You can't beat me like this. You can't just throw me in jail. I have to have a trial. I'm assuming that was the case at any rate. For whatever reason, and we could speculate all day long, maybe he knew that he was gonna meet this jailer, I don't know. But for whatever reason, he didn't exercise his rights. And because of that, a man and his family were brought to Christ. The next day, then Paul stands up and says, oh, they want to do this secretly and privately. No. No, they've beaten us uncondemned as Roman citizens. They can come get us themselves. 
It goes on to say when the magistrates heard about this, they were, they were scared. They were frightened because they knew they'd done the wrong thing. The point of the story is this. Doing the right thing always trumps, no pun intended, always trumps the rights. The right thing always trumps your rights. In other words, as a Christian, we shouldn't be so caught up in what our rights are as American citizens or Texan citizens, Texas citizens, but instead doing the right thing. What is right always trumps what our rights are. I want to consider the mission. Mark 16, verse 15. He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is it. This is the mission. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. This is the mission, the great commission that Jesus gave his disciples. Go into the world and make more disciples. This is what we're about, or what we should be about. Now, let's ask this question. What changes this? Does anything change our mission? Laws that say Christianity is illegal? Persecution? An elected official that we disagree with? Do those things change our mission? But sometimes we have way too much invested in a silly little election. This is the mission. Think about that as we read this passage. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Who are the enemies of the cross of Christ? Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. These people are enemies of the cross of Christ, Paul says. People who set their mind on earthly things. Notice he doesn't say they've set their mind on wicked and sinful things. They've set their mind on earthly things. Those people who listen to talk radio all day long and stress about the news those people who set their mind on those things are the enemies of the cross. Why? For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does it make us an enemy if we set our minds on earthly things? Because this is not our citizenship. And as noble and as just as we think some causes are, and some of them are, I believe, truly noble and just, this is not what it's about. Our citizenship is in heaven. Look at the Greek on this word citizenship. Not even the definition, just the word. I can't pronounce it, but there's the word politics is in there somewhere. Political. This is the root word. This is our politics. Not the things of this earth. Not Republican or Democrat or Libertarian. Our citizenship is in heaven. Kingdoms and nations come and go. When I was a kid, I could never, a young kid, I could never have imagined the Soviet Union falling. I saw it happen. The Berlin Wall, I was raised in school saying, this wall will never come down. I saw it come down. 
15, 20, 30 years from now, will there be a United States of America? I hope so, but maybe not. If not, I don't care because my citizenship is in heaven. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, if it was wrong for the servants of Jesus to fight, why do we get so caught up in the mess? Jesus told Pilate, listen, you can't wrap your head around this. You know, the Jews couldn't wrap their head around it. Even the apostles, until the day Jesus ascended to heaven, still couldn't wrap their head around what a spiritual kingdom was. He said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, Peter wouldn't have been the only one holding a sword in the garden. All 12 of them would have had a sword and all 12 of them would have fought tooth and nail to keep Jesus away from the Romans. That's not what it was about. If it was wrong for them to fight, what, thinks we, what, what makes us think that we have any right to get caught up in it and setting our mind on earthly things Stressing about what's going to happen in some silly election. His kingdom is not from here. Tell you what, some people, I can include myself in this at least at one point in my life, spend as much time or even half the time trying to convert people to Christianity as we do trying to convert people to conservatism. There'd be a lot more Christians in this world today. We waste so much time and we expend so much effort and we spew out hate, hateful things. And we're never gonna convince anybody of that anyway when instead we can be bringing people to Christ and doing it one soul at a time. What about you tonight? Where is your citizenship? If you've never been a citizen of the kingdom of God, now is the time. Don't wait another day. If you're willing to come tonight and confess Jesus as the Son of God and repent of your sins, be buried with him in baptism and set your mind not on earthly things, but on that spiritual kingdom. Become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Make that decision today. If you need the prayers of the church for any reason, please come have a seat on the front row while we stand and sing.